Good morning, everybody. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are a God who continues to provide for us, that you continue uh, to meet us through the different circumstances and seasons of life where we are at, and as Chase just saying that you make a way for us, make a way for us to be in relationship with you, make a way for us toward faithfulness in you, and make a way with regard to our daily needs. We pray now that as we turn our attention to your word that you would continue to show us what it means to abide in you and for you to provide for us in a continuing sense. And as we look at a topic that is very practical in its nature, uh, we pray that the spiritual realities continue to reinforce in us an appreciation for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cape Cod, Massachusetts is a 60-mile spit of land that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of New England. All along the Cape, both the north and the south side, you will find harbor villages that line the ocean front. And many of these harbors have dozens, if not hundreds of boats on moorings in the middle of the water in the harbor. A mooring is typically a heavy object that sits on the ocean floor that needs to be heavy enough to withstand the ebbs and the flows of the current. And so sometimes it's a large concrete block. Other times it's a 50-gallon oil drum that's filled with concrete. Sometimes it's really any other heavy object that can withstand the current. And from the concrete block or the mooring on the ocean floor runs a line up to the surface of the water that is held there by a buoy. When a boat comes to the mooring, it attaches to the buoy and to the mooring line and it stays steady in the same place. The larger the boat, the larger the mooring needs to be. But when the boat is tethered to the mooring, it doesn't move. The wind shifts, but the boat stays in the same spot. The weather turns, and the rain begins to come, but the boat stays where it is, sometimes for days sometimes for weeks, sometimes even for months, when a boat is tethered to its foundation on the mooring, it does not drift away. I was thinking about that the other day as I was seeing some pictures of many of you on your vacation and different oceanfront uh, scenes up and down the coast. I was thinking about that the other day as I was thinking about a lot of the drifting that's happening in our culture drifting of character or drifting of families or even drifting of churches. And it made me think about how God prevents healthy churches from drifting into error. Throughout the course of this series, we've seen how valuable the gathered people of God really is to him. The fact that God views you, the local church, with such great value that he bestows to you relational dynamics and titles and, and, and even bought you with the blood of his very own son. Surely, if he views you as that valuable, he's not going to allow local churches just to drift back and forth with the current of the culture around them, is he? No, in fact, he's not. God's given his church two 
things to help them stay tethered to the gospel. And it's these two things that are often described as the two true marks of a local church. They are this. The first is the right preaching of the word of God. And the second is the practice of the ordinances. The preaching of the word of God and the ordinances. And today, we are going to talk about the ordinances. Or in some traditions, they're called sacraments. An ordinance is a ceremonial action that was commanded by Jesus in the scriptures. And they are physical acts that represent God's grace in spiritual realities. They happen in the context of the people of God with some regularity. As God people get together and they engage in these ordinances, it points them to greater spiritual things. And the two ordinances that Jesus explicitly commands in the Bible are the ordinances of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. So today I want to give you a brief survey from the scripture about these two things. They're part of what it means to be in the community of God, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Normally when we get together on Sundays we spend most of our time in one passage of scripture. Today we're going to survey a handful of them. And these topics of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, have some great biblical and practical aspects for you as a Christian today. But the truth I want you to take away over all of the others that you'll hear in the next number of minutes is this. That the ordinances tether God's people to the gospel. The ordinances tether God's people to the gospel. And as we look at the two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we might call the first the initiation into God's family, baptism. And we could call the second, the Lord's Supper, the continuation in God's family. And so let's look at the first, baptism as the initiation into the family. If you've been at Old North for any time, we've spent a fair amount of time on the topic of baptism this last spring as we looked at Romans chapter 6 in our series on Romans. So we will spend a little bit less time today. But let me paint a picture for you of what the Bible teaches about baptism. We see that Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, just as he is about to leave the world, gathers his disciples together and he gives them a command, a command that so many of you heard so many times. It's this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus nearing the end of his time on earth, gathers them together and commands them to make disciples. Pastor Marty mentioned this morning in his announcement time, we are people who are disciples who are making disciples. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And you make disciples in three ways, Jesus says. Number one, by going. Number three, by teaching them to obey. But right in the middle, number two, baptizing them. Baptizing part of disciple making. And so that's exactly what the Christians did. The apostles in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the book of Acts went and they preached the good news of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and they baptized people. And we see the first instance of that in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Peter is preaching to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. And as he shares the good news about Jesus, it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So from the very beginning, the word was preached, people exercised faith, and as a visible expression of that faith, they were baptized. A physical uh, representation of a spiritual reality. Acts chapter 8. Philip is on the road and he comes across an Ethiopian official, a eunuch, who's riding in his chariot and he's reading aloud from the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip approaches the chariot and he describes for him what he is reading. And starting from that passage in Isaiah, he shares with him the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And the eunuch puts his faith in him. And his response is this. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And we see in Romans chapter 6, a reminder for many of us, a teaching of what baptism symbolizes or what it means. And so we see examples of it happening. It's always happening after people put their faith in Jesus. It's always happening with water as they go down into the water. But here we see Paul right into the church at Rome and he's explaining to them what it means. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so Paul explains that if he's talking about water baptism, and I believe that he is, that when you're baptized, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him, spiritually speaking. That Jesus unites himself to you, and you become united to him. And every time I think about that, it becomes somewhat overwhelming. And I hope you never lose that sense. That Jesus, the perfect son of God, who is holy and just and true and loving and righteous, not only condescended from eternity onto earth, to live among sinners, to teach them, to be an example for them, and then to sacrifice himself for them. But that in doing so, those who would put their faith in him, that he would unite himself to people like me and people like you. That the perfect son of God would become inextricably linked to somebody as sinful as I am. As dark as I can think as terrible as I have acted and that he never lets you go. And your baptism shows the most important way that you are united to him and that he is united to you. As you go under the water, Paul says, it's like you are buried with Christ, <laughs> that you're dead 
in your sins and your trespasses. Just like Jesus died and was buried in the tomb. And as you rise out of the water, that you are alive, you walk in the newness of life, just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And you are united in that future resurrection with him as well. So that's a biblical survey of baptism. It is the practical initiation into the family of God. And there are a lot of questions that come with that, a lot of questions about the application. And so let's just ask a couple of them this morning. Here's some common questions that we get asked about baptism. The first question is, must I be baptized to be saved? Or, it's phrased in the opposite, if I'm not baptized, can I still be saved? (laughs) Uh, Must I be baptized to be saved? The answer is no. You You don't need to be baptized to be saved. The Bible consistently has the message that the only way that you are saved from your sins is by faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins because of his sacrifice. That that faith allows God to exercise his grace to you in such a way that you become a new person, reconciled to God now and forever. But if baptism is commanded by the Lord Jesus as a representation of that saving faith, then I think that you do need to be baptized to be obedient. You don't need baptism to be saved, but you do need to be baptized to be obedient. And why wouldn't you want to be? After all, if your life has been changed now and forever, if your eternal destiny has been altered for the good, then of course you would want to obey and proclaim and celebrate the spiritual reality that baptism points us to. Here's another common question. Is the mode of baptism important? And by mode, I mean that different religious traditions practice different modes of baptism. We here practice baptism by immersion under that large boat right there is a hole in the floor. I'm sorry for all of you people sitting in this section and have not been able to see anything that's happened today. Um, there's a, there's a large tank in the floor right there where people come into the water and we immerse them. Underwater, out of water. Some of you come from religious traditions where they pour water over the heads of people. Others uh, where they sprinkle water and on down the line. Is the mode of baptism important? Yes and no. <laughs> the mode is not ultimately important. What's most important is that somebody has faith in the Lord Jesus and then follows in baptism. So a minute ago we said, does baptism mean that I'm going to be saved? The answer is no. But must I be saved to be baptized? The biblical example is yes. (laughs) That baptism follows faith. That's the most important. But beyond that, I think the mode does have some importance. It's not insignificant. And the reason why I say that is because of Romans chapter 6. If, as Paul says, that baptism symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection, that which you go under the water that symbolizes death and burial, when you come out of the water that symbolizes resurrection, then immersion is the symbol that points to that spiritual reality. And so in this sense, the mode is important. In a way that pouring symbolizes Something different. It symbolizes 
Maybe the pouring out of the Holy Spirit or pouring out uh, or, or the washing away of sin. But Romans 6 points us specifically to what this symbol is to represent. And so I think immersion in that sense is important. One common question is, is, is where should I be baptized? Can I be baptized in the pool in the backyard, in the hot tub, uh, uh, in the bathtub, <laughs> in the hole in the floor at Old North? Where, where should I be baptized? And the Bible does not give direct prescription, but one example is clear that you should be baptized in public, in some form of public gathering, because baptism is a public profession of your faith. And so Tony Evans writes uh, comically, he says, the idea of a baptized believer is that they have gone public in declaring that they are wedded to another, Jesus. We would think it's odd if a husband never wanted to go out in public with his wife. <laughs> if he said, I'll have dinner with you, but just not at a restaurant, only if it's at home. I'll go to a movie with you, but only if it's on the couch in the living room, not actually out in public in the movie theater. That type of behavior would be insulting to the spouse. And he goes on to say that Jesus is insulted when believers in him identify with him in private, but in public they don't want folks to know that they're associated with him. And so we would encourage you to be baptized in some form of public gathering. And most often for us, that's in public in front of our church family. The people that will celebrate the reality with you the most. The people that will rejoice with you in moving from death to life. The people who know and can understand the gospel. Here's a question that we get with some regularity. Do I need to be baptized to be a member? The answer is yes. Believers pursuing obedience to God and his word become members of a local church. And in this sense, baptism has always been required of membership for local churches that are of any sort of uh, genuine or orthodox Christian belief. I can't think of one credible church uh, in the history of the New Testament to today that didn't require baptism to become a member. And in this sense, it truly is an initiation, a public initiation into the family of God. Here's a common question that we have. What age should a child be baptized? And this one's hard. It's hard because it's emotional for us uh, with our own children. It's hard because the Bible does not specify an age to ensure that a child's decision is his or her own. Uh, for example, we've had some really interesting conversations in my family in the last 24 hours. Uh, our five-year-old Noelle last night was sitting on the couch next to me, and, and I was asking her some questions, and one of the questions, we were talking about love. And I said, well, who do you love the most? And like a good pastor's daughter, who's a budding theologian, she said, I love God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all the most, but I love them differently but I love them equally. <laughs> I know, right? I said, wow, I mean, this is like a little Trinitarian in the making right now. And so, and in her five-year-old mind, I believe her. And then, of course, dad and mom come subsequently to that. And, and I believe her. I believe that that's what she thinks. 
And yet at the same time, uh, she has not had any real life experience to contrast that regurgitation of belief (laughs) as an internalized reality. Should we baptize her? Because she can say the right things and even genuinely believe them in a five-year-old mind. Uh, I think the answer is no. And I think it's no because we want to ensure that a child's decision is his or her own. And so at Old North, our common practice, uh, I'm sure is not perfect, but our common practice is we usually wait till children are about 12 or 13 years old to start having those types of conversations with them. Because at the age of 12 or 13, we see a number of things happening. We see, number one, they've had a, some level of worldly and adult interaction. They are processing thing on, things on a different level than they were when they were five or six or seven. They have had some contrast in their social circles about what it means to be a Christian and not be a Christian. And faith to them at that point starts to become much more real and much more personal. Now, is that a problem? Because do we believe that some children are truly and genuinely Christians before that? Absolutely we think so. And at the same time, on the other end of the pole, we want to be very careful not to put children in a position where there's a false sense of security because they were baptized when they were young at the age of five, even though in the age of 25, they want nothing to do with Jesus. And so that is our common practice. Is it perfect? No. Does it work to try to accomplish those goals? I think yes. A physical proclamation of a spiritual reality. Union with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. The gospel. And every time, every time a person comes to faith, we get to not just hear about it, we get to see it. And we see it. And we are reminded of it. And we celebrate it in their baptism. Because the ordinances tether God's people to the gospel. So if baptism is the the initiation into the family of God, then the continuation in the family of God is the Lord's Supper. Baptism is something you do once as a Christian. If you were baptized as a believer in the Lord Jesus, uh, you do that one time, or, or, or maybe if you become a member of a local church that has specific uh, guidelines for baptism like ours, do you, you have to be baptized by immersion, then maybe you'll be baptized to fall, in, to fall in historical precedent with that local church family. But beyond that, that's, that's the extent of your baptism. But the Lord's Supper, that is something that you do repeatedly as a Christian throughout the course of your Christian life. And the Bible speaks about this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Lord's Supper taking place hours before Jesus' arrest and his subsequent death. And Luke 22, 19 records Jesus commanding them to practice the same in the Lord's Supper. He says, it says, and Jesus took the bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this. You, you. You do this in remembrance of me. And so we take the bread, we break it, and we eat it, remembering Jesus' body that was broken, 
to pay the penalty of our sin. We take the cup and we drink it, grape juice or wine, remembering his blood that was shed to satisfy the wrath of God in our sin. And there are a number of things that are symbolized in the Lord's Supper. The first symbol is Christ's death, the breaking of the body and the pouring of the blood. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you take communion, or the Lord's Supper, we call it, you proclaim his death. That doesn't mean that you simply proclaim that it happened. It means that you proclaim that it happened and that it was sufficient. It was sufficient payment for sin. And the benefits of it are applied to you. There are other symbols. One of those symbols, things symbolized in the Lord's Supper, is our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. You're called to take and eat. It's met with the reaching out of hands and the grabbing of something which proclaims, I'm taking and receiving the benefits for myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes in verses 16 through 18 about our participation in the benefits of the Lord's Supper. He's warning the Corinthians about idolatry and he says this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Spiritual participation. We saw that in the act of baptism as well. Through being united to Jesus, there's a sense in which we participate in a spiritual sense with him. It's mystical, it's complicated. But verse 18 gives us a glimpse in what it means. He says that Israel were participates, participants in the altar because of the sacrifices they ate. That is, that they participated in all of the benefits with what happened in the sacrifice. And so you too, Christians, benefit. You benefit by God's grace Forgiveness, restored fellowship with him through the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus on the cross. This benefit comes to you by faith, but it's expressed in the Lord's Supper. Spiritual nourishment is also something that's symbolized in the Lord's Supper. And today we turn to John chapter 6. Jesus says to those hearers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also lives because of me. It's a fairly morbid description. It's a description that's been controversial through the ages. It's caused some people to hear that teaching and say, Christians are a bunch of cannibals. <laughs> it's caused other people to 
come to believe that the bread and the cup actually and magically transform into literal flesh and literal blood. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is using the language of abiding in him and us and and him abiding in us and the language of feeding on him to talk about continuation. The Christian continues to be united with Jesus by faith. Jesus unites himself to you and through faith you continue in him. And what this means for you is that your Christian life is not just a one-time moment or event. It doesn't mean that your Christian life is all summed up by the moment that you walked the aisle or prayed the prayer or had a dream or had a conversion experience. As important and as monumental as that was for your eternity. That does not sum up your Christian life. Your Christian life is summed up by continuation in Christ. Abiding in him, relying on him for all of your spiritual needs, for your spiritual growth, for your growth in the knowledge of God, for your growth in holiness, and for hope in the life that is to come. Spiritual nourishment. And this ongoing abiding in Christ is symbolized in the repeated action of the Lord's Supper. So every time you take of it, you say, I need to abide. (laughs) I need to abide. Abide in him and he abides in me. Nourishment. The last thing that we'll talk about today that's a symbol of the Lord, or symbolized in the Lord's Supper is the unity of believers. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we read it a moment ago. talks about when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not simply partaking on our own. Paul writes that there's one bread and therefore we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The idea of the church being a body is something we've talked about. The body, united together under Jesus with its many parts. And we see here that the Lord's Supper is a unifying act as we gather around the table together, even if figuratively. All of us in need of the same forgiveness. All of us in need of the same nourishment. There's no one greater than the other. We're unified under this cross. A.W. Tozer writes, Have you ever, or has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned by the same fork, are therefore all tuned to each other? Have you ever thought about that? They are of one accord by being tuned, but not being tuned to each other, but by being tuned to the standard to which each one must individually bow. And so too, a hundred worshipers or a thousand worshipers that are at Old North today, meeting together, all each one looking away to Jesus Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly become if they became unity conscience in their life together. And they turned their eyes away from God and just focused on their fellowship with each other. But because they're united individually to Jesus, they become closer to each other than they could have ever been otherwise. Wow. The ordinances 
tether God's people to the gospel. And so what are some questions about the Lord's Supper that we hear? The first and most complicated of them is how is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? This has been a topic of debate for centuries. We could spend a lot of time here. We don't have that much left. But suffice it to say that in the scripture we see that the command to do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me, is the chief command that comes with the taking of the bread and the cup. Secondly, I think that there is a sense in which Jesus is uniquely present, but not in the bread itself or in the cup itself. Or not around and under the bread itself or in the cup itself, as Luther would say. But there is a sense in which Jesus is uniquely present through the faith of the gathered people as they carry out his commands and remember his sacrifice. There's unique dynamic and blessing that comes from Christ in this moment. Another question is how often should we take the Lord's Supper? The Bible doesn't prescribe frequency. Some take it weekly. Some take it once a year. But I think the answer should be regularly. (laughs) At our church, we take the Lord's Supper usually once a month. This month, we'll take it twice this month. But there needs to be regularity to it. Why? Because of the importance of remembering and reaffirming. Because we are so prone to forget. You see this through the Bible. You see God's people, Israel, are delivered miraculously by ten plagues in Egypt. They saw the power of God in a way that they had never seen it before. And they go out into the wilderness and the first thing they do is complain and worship false gods. They did not remember. And so the people continue and they go into the promised land and God miraculously delivers a crossing over of the river and into the cities and the cities fall before them as they take hold of their inheritance. And what is the response of the people? They spread out, they intermarry with people they're not supposed to intermarry with and they start worshiping foreign gods. Why? They didn't remember. You see, the Old Testament continues that People of Israel know that God is their one and true king. They know this. They've been taught this. They're called to remember his wonderful kingly ways. And yet at the same time, they want to be like the other nations. And so they elect for themselves their own king. They didn't remember. And the kingdom is established. And as the kingdom is established, you see this variance of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And some kings follow the Lord and some kings don't. And it's almost like generation after generation, there's a shift back and forth and back and forth. And why such inconsistency among the people of God? It's because they did not remember. And so you see the psalmist write again and again and again throughout one of the major themes of the 151 psalms is remember. Remember what God did. Remember who God is. Remember what God did. Remember the love of God applied to you. Remember the great works of his hand. Remember his impeccable character and how it applies to your life. Don't forget. And so why do we take the Lord's Supper with some regularity? Because we too forget. 
You know this to be true. You know how you're here on Sunday. You can sing the songs loudly. You can give of your money generously. And yet by Monday afternoon, you're tempted and you fall into direct sin and rebellion against God. You've got a short memory. And so we take the Lord's Supper and it helps us to remember and to reaffirm the gospel. Another question that we're asked with some frequency is, who can take the Lord's Supper? Short answer is anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins can and should take the Lord's Supper with, I think, one exception. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warns that if a person knows the gospel but chooses to live in their sin, (laughs) if the person even calls themselves a Christian but chooses to live in rebellion, that they should not take the supper. For as much as taking the bread and the cup proclaims spiritual life for those of you who believe, Proclaim spiritual death for the one who lives in their sins when they know the truth. Paul says, those eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And we see examples of the spiritual consequences being significant. And so I would just encourage you that if you're here today and you're about ready to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, that, and you know that you're rebelling against God, you know that you're living in unrepentant sin, then you have one of two options. Option number one, Repent. Don't wait a moment longer for the God who loves you and is calling you back to himself. And do that spiritual work with him before the supper comes. And take the supper rejoicing in the life that you have and the forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Or let the elements pass. Live in your rebellion longer. Experience the consequence of it but I would encourage you, do not take the Lord's Supper and therefore drink spiritual judgment upon yourself. Here's a question. What should my posture be at the Lord's table? It's really interesting when you go to different churches and you see the ambiance of the room or the posture of the people as they are at the Lord's Supper. I think just very briefly, what should your posture be? It should be intentional. It should be thankful should be joyful. We're celebrating the greatest spiritual reality in the history of the world. And it should be reverent. It's not playful in its nature on one end, and it's not an obligatory action that you go through on the other end. It's not playful. We don't have the Lord's Supper with milk and cookies around the campfire symbolizing the cup and the bread. No, that's, we're more serious, we're more reverent than that. And likewise, we don't just come to church, go through the motions, take the bread, drink the cup, and move on to the next thing as quickly as we possibly can. Intentional, thankful, joyful, but reverent. Final question is one that we hear regularly. Same question as baptism. At what age should my children take the Lord's Supper? The Bible does not prescribe. And we leave it to you, parents, to shepherd your children into the taking of the supper. My kids, at the age of seven and five and three, uh, we do not allow them to take the Lord's Supper for a variety of reasons. Even though they have some knowledge of Jesus and profess faith in some sort of way, they still confuse it with a good mid-service snack. And even last night, uh, uh, as our six-year-old was praying 
uh, before bed. She thanked Jesus for his sacrifice, and then she said, Dear God, if at church tomorrow they have the community, then please let me take some too. (laughs) Needless to say, uh, she is not allowed to take the Lord's Supper today. (laughs) She doesn't even know how to say it, never mind what it really means. And so like... And so like baptism, we want children to be able to understand what's happening and what it means. The elements of themselves are not a magical disbursement of grace. The grace is found through faith. (laughs) And when genuine understanding faith occurs, we encourage that to be followed by the ordinances. And so for our kids, it makes sense. It makes sense in the Gatsky family that if the initiation into the family of God, the ordinance of baptism, is what we do first, then it would make sense that communion or the Lord's Supper wouldn't take place until after baptism. So that's the way we're approaching that. We don't prescribe that upon people in our church, but we do trust you and entrust you with shepherding your children toward a meaningful experience of the ordinances. It's important to remember. It's important to remember and reaffirm what is significant to us. I feel like we do this and recognize this intuitively, but when it comes to certain things in life, maybe we're not as intentional as we should be. I wonder if you've ever heard a band that's changed for the worse over time. Of course you have. You've heard dozens of them. Maybe a band that was so good when they played country music, but now they play pop music and They're just not very good anymore. And you think to yourself, wow, they forgot who they were. (laughs) They forgot what they were all about. They forgot what got them there. Or maybe a person that you know, and as time has passed, you think to yourself, oh, it's such a shame. They've forgotten who they are. They came from a great family. They used to be so generous and so kind. They were taught to live one way, but now they're living a completely different way. They forgot who they were. It's important for us to remember and to reaffirm because in doing so, we reinforce our identity and our top priorities. That's why people sign up for things like Ancestry.com. They want to know where they come from, who they are, and have that shape in some way their identity. This is why we go to family reunions. We spend precious vacation time and a fair amount of money to get together with a bunch of family who relationally we're not even really that close to anymore because we live all over the country and we say we're going to devote this time and this resources to this reunion. Why? Because it's important to remember and to reaffirm. It helps us understand who we are. This is why we renew our wedding vows. Or when we go to a wedding even. When we think to ourselves as we're hearing the minister bring the, 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 the husband and the bride together in their vows, we think to ourselves, I remember my vows. I remember the day that I stood up there and said those things. And it reminds us of the importance of them again today. Remembering and reaffirming our identity. That's what we do in the ordinances. And you'll notice that these two ordinances both point to the same reality. That God could have us remember a variety of spiritual realities. 
but he gives us these two physical things to point to the same spiritual reality, the most important reality, the defining reality in the life of a Christian and in the life of a local church, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. As Christians and as a church, there's all kinds of pressures to become a certain type of spiritual person or to be this type of church or that type of church. But at the end of the day, this is the most important aspect of our identity. The ordinances tether us to the gospel. They point us back to who we really are and what we're really all about. They remind us about the most important thing and they do not allow us to drift away. You maybe have seen a boat that's drifted away. A boat that drifts aimlessly at sea. A boat that's become untethered and has no power. It becomes dangerous. It's a dangerous situation for anybody in the boat or for anybody that the boat might run into. It's a boat that could capsize in the waves as it turns sideways. It's a boat that if it hits or collides with another boat, if it's not steady. It's a boat that runs into the beach or to the rocks and it breaks apart. But if the boat is tethered, it's secure. God gives his church the word and the ordinances to tether them to the gospel. And in this we remember and we reaffirm. And so to close our service this morning, we are gonna take the Lord's Supper to remember and to reaffirm who we are and what the most important things are. And so as I pray, let's use this time to remember. Remember even the time you became a Christian, you put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Reaffirm your commitment to him in this time. Confess your sin before him and celebrate the grace of God as expressed in Christ. Please pray with me. Father God in heaven, we thank you that you do not leave us to drift, but that you tether us to the most important things. Today we proclaim the Lord Jesus' death until he comes. We pray, Father, that we would have spiritual nourishment by abiding in him and him in us. We ask, God, that you would grow us and, sh and shape us and mold us into the likeness of your son. That you would help us in the difficult waters of our society today with the, with the overwhelming influences of the culture, that you would continue to give us a vision of who you are and what you do in the lives of Christians. And we know that that's related to the gospel. And so we pray for your help. We confess now our sins to you, intentional or unintentional. And we take hold of the grace that you give because of the crucified Christ. Amen.